Welcome to History Uncensored. I'm your host, Seth Michaels, and today we are going to talk about women, or more specifically, one woman, uh, that's Hypatia. And I just want to get this off my chest. Uh, what defines a woman? As a guy, I have my own answers, probably different than yours or your friends or your mother's, so on and so forth. But the reason that I really wanted to focus on women in history and specifically of women of science is that, well, shit, for 12,000 years, let's say since the start of civilization, women haven't really been allowed to be a nominal part of the STEM fields. Or most fields, actually, they had their one duty and that was rearing children at home and um, being a homemaker being a wife and and i'm not gonna say that those are things that you shouldn't strive for but they don't embody everything that we've lost by not allowing women to have been a part of history or at least a larger part so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna focus on those women and the very first episode today, it's going to be our, my first, my very first Women of History episode. We're going to do Hypatia. She's pretty fucking great, and I think we're going to kill it. Uh, and yeah, let's let's kind of start and think about this for a moment. Women's voices have been cast as an ominous shadow from the dark depths of history, oftentimes forgot. And I want to focus on what more perhaps we could have accomplished by allowing the beautiful minds of women uh, to further humanity because they fucking weren't bullshit all right as i said women of history badasses badass women of history badass bitches i'm not sure what i'm going to call this yet um just know that this is going to be a mini series that will focus on um a specific woman in history that made an impact and i'm gonna do as i've said probably three times now hypatia and i really like the name uh, perhaps it's just me but we really don't know too much about hypatia's life we know a few things she was born around 355 ce perhaps 370 ce depends on where you're reading uh, she died a heinous crime in March of 415. This was supposed to be released in March, but I'm lazy, um, so it, it hasn't been. Sorry. And it's just a unique story and kind of goes down in history as, at least some people think of it as one of the catalysts for the Dark Age. Um, and I can see where they're coming from, but I'll get into why that's not exactly right. And I'm not here to condemn, if you might know the story of Hypatia, she was killed by a Christian mob. We'll get way more into that later. It's the thing that we know the most about her. But I'm not here to condemn Christians, um, even though at times, you know, their history, just like most religious history, is pretty ugly. They killed an innocent woman, um, and they helped in the, the destruction of some of the greatest works ever known. But before I get into Hypatia's life, I really want to talk about each of these episodes, what it was like to be a woman, uh, when and where they lived. And so 
if you're unaware, Hypatia lived in Alexandria uh, in the 4th century Roman Empire. So let's talk about that a little bit. In the 4th century, a, a lot of historians kind of think of this as just kind of like a meh part of Roman history. Really not too much happened. Uh, even though it, Rome, the eternal city, was sacked and destroyed, or partially destroyed during the 4th and 5th century. Um, but let's see what we can figure out what life was kind of like in the tinderbox city of Alexandria. It really was a tinderbox. Well, life as a woman. What, what can we expect as a, a Roman woman as opposed to other parts of history where uh, women were seen as second-class citizens? Um, it's a little different in Rome, not entirely different, uh, but they were at least given some liberties. So in Rome, believe it or not, women were allowed to own property pretty much as long as they weren't married because then it was the guy's property. The Romans lived by a code called Pater Familius. Uh, this code of conduct or, or reasoning granted the father uh, or male head of the household very specific rights over every family member and servant. And this included his wife and his children. Any dependents, basically. What role did that have on women in society? It had just about everything to do with it. Um, and it... Perhaps if you were married, it might have held your specific goals as uh, a woman. You were basically unable to accomplish them, perhaps. Uh, to give you an idea, in modern society, men and women should share equal rights to child custody based on circumstances, right? Well, in ancient Rome, in the event of a divorce, the father always gained custody of the child. That's really hard for me to imagine. Um, I have two children. I have a, a four-month-old, or almost four-month-old, and I have a three-year-old at home, uh, Kylar and Roland, and it would terrify me to take them away from their mother. It's, just, it's a terrifying thought. I mean, I would be terrified if they were taken away from me, um, but I don't know. There's something about a mother's love, right? So what about education during um, the Roman time for women? This is something that I think uh, the Romans uh, accomplish a little bit better than other societies. Uh, women were allowed to gain tutelage, and uh, mostly middle and upper class women, but hey, that, there's a plus there, right? So we at least have some women who are gaining knowledge. Um, part of that is, the <laughs> and believe it or not, right? Um, Women were allowed to gain knowledge, so they were better able to converse with their husbands. Man, us dudes, we got it fucking good for, like, all of history. Um, yeah, so the only reason that women were allowed, or one of the reasons that women were allowed to, to learn is so that they could talk with their husbands at an intellectual level. The other reason, this is really cool, this is uh, one of the things I enjoyed about researching this, is that women took care of the estates. And what I mean by the estate is they took care of the business deals, they took care of the financial side of things. Um, so, well, let's say the, the husband is off doing his senator thing, uh, the wife could be at home and balancing the books and really taking care of some of the more important aspects of life it's not much you know 
my own wife is definitely better on the business side than I am. Okay, so we know that they were allowed property. Uh, they, in some cases, were allowed to learn and they were even allowed to own their own businesses and operate their husband's estate as a business or their own estate if they were unmarried as a business, which is really cool. What, what else compromised? What else was life like for a woman in Rome? Um, well, one thing that we know for pretty certain is that there's an enormous pressure for women to be as attractive as possible. Does that sound familiar? To anybody. Oh wait. Okay, I've waited long enough. Yeah, it does, right? I just kind of want to. Another thing, getting off my chest. This is the first time I'm doing a women pod, history of women podcast. So there's probably a lot of this shit that I'm going to talk about. Past and present, uh, women have had this immense pressure to be as attractive as possible to accomplish anything in life. It's part of the reason that the most famous women that we can think of are, we think of them more as um, beautiful as than we do intelligent, or at least for the most part. Compare and contrast that to the great men of history. They were seen as great leaders or brilliant minds. They did wondrous things. Um, but the majority of them, you wouldn't look at them and say, you know what? It's a good-looking guy. Think about our founding fathers. Uh, I mean, some of them uh, historically were very attractive, but that's not what they were notorious for. So women needed to be attractive. Uh, can anybody guess why they might need to have been attractive? If you guessed, you probably guessed right. It was for, drum roll please, the men in their life. Uh, you see a pattern forming. The attractiveness of his of a female counterpart to the male had a direct impact on the social standing of the man in question regarding marriage. So high-standing men, attractive or not, were always to seek out the highest standing, most attractive female possible. Marriage was seen as a way to create legitimate children. Um, so what did guys do? They went and had relations with other women, you know, uh, sometimes in their own homes. Uh, concubines were common and so was prostitution. Um, and you could be seen going into a brothel and it, it really didn't have a negative impact on you and your standing as a husband. So now some of the bad, right? If I were to say to you, or if I were to ask you, do you think women were allowed to hold office in the Roman Empire? You would say no and you'd be right. <laughs> Nobody should be surprised to hear that. And um, I, I mean, I think that's important. I mean, there are definitely examples of Roman women swaying the support for like certain uh, laws and things and rhetoric um, but they weren't really allowed to hold public office except this one person that i can think of it might be about who this podcast is about hmm hypatia 
she held a public office. She was the chief officer of the Museum of Alexandria. Coincidentally, so was her dad. But, so let's get to Hypatia. The buildup is over, we're finally here. What does all that stuff I talked about have to do with her? Well, one thing that I, I find quite interesting that I kind of mentioned before is that if you take a husband, a lot of the rights and opportunities you had disappeared. So Hypatia did something I think any smart woman uh, would do at that point. You know, if she wanted to maintain her status, she remained celibate. That's right. Her entire life. No sex. Doesn't sound exactly fun to me. But, you know, hey, teach their own. And I think that's really important that um, that an intelligent woman like Hypatia wouldn't have wanted to concede her rights as a free, non-married um, person. Alright, we got all of that gobbledygook, all that shit right out of the way. The bottom line, women were second-class citizens. I don't personally believe that. Were, okay? I said it, were. Not, not my personal beliefs. As I said earlier, this badass was born about 355, could have been 370. Who the fuck knows? But she was born the daughter of Theon of Alexandria. He was a pretty prominent mathematician and scholar of the age. He ran a school in Alexandria, um, perhaps utilized some of the last remnants of the Library of Alexandria. And one thing, and you guys should hold me to this, right, is I would really like to um, do a podcast on the on Alexandria, perhaps the Great Library. Super interesting history. Um, doesn't affect this one too much. You, you get the very kind of, like I said, remnants. There's maybe some knowledge that had been left over that hadn't been destroyed previously. But I wanted to throw this out there because in my research, I saw some articles stating that she would have had access to upwards of 500,000 scrolls and books at the library. It's not true. It didn't really exist. Um, it, it was pretty much destroyed. I think it was 38 BC. But back to Hypatia. She was considered a, a preeminent scholar, and she was an astronomer, loosely, not in the term that we think about it, a philosopher, most importantly, and then also a mathematician. She was raised by her father in the ancient Greek way, and, and what that means is that he passed his knowledge directly on to her, kind of as he would have if she had been a son. Um, I do want to take a note, and I kind of hinted at this just a moment ago, a special note on the word astronomer. She was most likely not an astronomer in the modern sense of the word at all. She practiced something called divine geometry because she was a neoplatonist. Uh, it, it kind of it, it was a practice to open up her mind and get closer to the oneness like a perfect self. It was a religion that really pervaded her entire existence. Um, so, not really astronomer um, in the sense that we think of. She did practice astrology, <laughs> um, or the, the divining of horoscopes, and it's exactly what you think it is. But nonetheless, you know, it wasn't just her mind that was a weapon, but it was also her voice. She carried herself very well in rhetoric, uh, seeming at ease uh, among an assembly of men. And here's 
something from uh, Socrates Scholastus, Scholasticus, uh, who was probably the preeminent historian in Rome at the time. There was a woman at Alexandria named Hypatia, daughter of the philosopher Theon, who made such attainments in literature and science as to far surpass all the philosophers of her own time, having succeeded in the school of Plato and Plotinus. She explained the principles of philosophy to her auditors, many of whom came from a distance to receive her instructions. On account of the self-possession... Oh yeah, that's right. Oh, that's where I was. Sorry, I took a moment, had to get a drink, my throat was dry. Leave me alone. Back to where I was. On the account of the self-possession and ease of manner, which she had acquired in consequence of the cultivation of her mind, she not unfrequently appeared in public in presence of the magistrates. Neither did she feel abashed in going to an assembly of men. For all men, on account of her extraordinary dignity and virtue, admired her the more. Yet even she fell victim to the political jealousy which at that time prevailed. Ooh. Foreshadowing. Uh, so regarding Hypatia, the philosopher and the sedition of uh, Alexandrians, Hypatia was born, reared, and educated in Alexandria. And it was said that she had a genius even greater than her father. She wasn't satisfied with his instruction mathematical subjects. She used to put on her philosopher's cloak and she'd walk through the middle of town and publicly interpret Plato or Aristotle or works of any other philosopher to those who she wanted to, you know, she wanted to be seen, she wanted to be heard. And in addition, she, uh, she was always seen as a, this very pinnacle of civic virtue, always for the betterment of um, society, or at least the upper echelon of society. Uh, a really kind of interesting note in Hypatia's history, it was said that she was so beautiful that she had beguiled several of her students through music and divination. And we know that it, she did practice divination and she was certainly talented in music. Although the true story goes as kind of as follows, right? A young male student fell in love with the body, soul, and mind of Hypatia, his teacher. Upon learning of this, remember she was celibate her entire life, Hypatia grabbed rags stained with the blood of her menstruation. She picked them up and she showed them to the young man. I'm sure this had a lasting impression. She said to him, See this. This is what you love, not me, young man. And it isn't beautiful. And it said he was so affected by shame and the amazement at the ugly sight that he experienced a change of heart and went away a better man. Uh, such was Hypatia, as articulate and eloquent in speaking as she was prudent and civil in her deeds. You know, not that I ever want to be shown um, menstruation blood on rags, but I think that was an appropriate tactic for her. I mean, it worked out well, obviously. Um, would have worked on me. Yeah, she was a smart lady. Hope she washed her hands right after that.
History is pretty clear uh, that Alexandria really kind of began to decline as Christianity rose in, in power and uh, um, and we're coming to this this penultimate point here that um, the death of Hypatia had kind of come to symbolize um, and embody all that was lost to civilization in Alexandria, kind of this tumult of religious intolerance and um, basically warring between members of Alexandria's society. Um, as I said earlier, Alexandria is a, a tinderbox of excitement and, and danger. And she lived through some of the most interesting times in most of Alexandrian history, including this conversion to Christianity, which involved, unfortunately, the destruction of some of the oldest and greatest structures within Alexandria, including the Serapeum, which is uh, an, an old pagan... Um, temple that is said to have at least possibly housed the some of the remnants of the Library of Alexandria. It was ordered destroyed. The historian Slacken writes, uh, Greek women, Roman women of all classes were occupied with the same type of work. They mostly centered around the domestic needs of the family, as I mentioned. Women cared for young children, nursed the sick, prepared the food. Blah, 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 blah. Patia lived the life of a very respected academic, and um, she led one of Alexandria's, or assisted in teaching at Alexandria's university, as well as running the museum, uh, which is, as far as evidence suggests, which the only males were previously entitled to it as a kind of a public position of power. Um, so yeah, one of the very neat things that I, I like about Hypatia, she held public office, is exceptionally rare. I don't think I found any other evidence, unless you include like Cleopatra or something like that, um, during the Roman times. And the breadth of her interests was super impressive. And I talked about that she was a mathematician. She really focused on geometry, advanced geometry. She wrote a commentary on uh, Euclid. Um, she worked on algebra for the time, which is difficult algebra, and algebra really hadn't fully come to prominence quite yet, and uh, that's probably a story for another time. And then all, she did all of that, uh, as well as teaching, and while engaging in uh, religious philosophy and trying to increase her respect in the city and focus on her writing, she it seems like she was a renaissance woman. She did everything. She did music, divinations. She did all sorts of different things. And one of my favorite quotes uh, uh, about Hypatia here. It was said that in her classes and public lectures, Hypatia exhorted people to think critically. It's something that's lacking from society today. She says, Reserve your right to think. For even to think wrongly is better than not to think at all. And I, I think what she means here, you can think wrongly, but at least think critically about it. Don't just go off sprouting the first thing that comes to your mind. That's not thinking, that's just talking. Kind of what I'm doing now, just talking. And it was said that she was a phenomenal teacher, but what did Hypatia teach? 
to her students. Yeah, not talking about the university students. I'm talking about her philosophy students. And before we get into that and her death, we are going to take just a little break for me to catch my breath. All right, people, I'm back. And I left off on asking, well, what did she teach to her students? We don't know. I'm going to repeat that. We have no idea. She's so mysterious. For real, it was, it was a secret. Her inner circle, her, her students were privy. But the, the vulgar and uneducated masses? No chance! My friend, the, the knowledge was hermetic and it was meant to be sealed away from public knowledge, whom in her eyes had no chance of understanding the, the teachings. One of her students, Synesius, uh, I'm sorry if I butcher these names, urged his fellow students to maintain secrecy regarding what he and other students learned from, get this, their spirit guide in a letter to his buddy, Herculean. You have not kept your promise, my dear friend. The promise which you made that you would not reveal those things which ought to remain hidden. I have just listened to people who have come from you. They remembered some of your expressions, and they begged me to reveal the meaning of them. But according to my custom, I did not pretend to them that I understood the writings and questions nor did I say that I knew them. You no longer need any warning from me, dear Herculean, for it would not be enough to convince you. Rather, look up the letter which Lysis the Pythagorean addressed to Hippocrates, and when you have found it, oblige me by reading it frequently. Perhaps you will then experience a complete change of mind in regard to your uncalled-for revelation. To explain philosophy to the mob, as Lysis says in his somewhat Dorian dialect, is only to awaken amongst men a great contempt for things divine. How often have I met time and time again people who, because they had rashly listened to some stately little phrases, refused to believe themselves the laymen that they really were. Wow, what a scathing indictment from uh, Cynesis to his friend, his, his best buddy old pal. And some of these people, some of these people that were in Hypatia's inner circle later came to be some of the most powerful people in, you know, that part of the Roman Empire. So, I mean, man, I want to know what was in those teachings. Perhaps it could help me. Here we are. Very public death. Hypatia, Act 3. On up the nave, fresh shreds of her dress strewing the holy pavement, up the chancel steps themselves up to the altar, right underneath the great still Christ. And there even those hellhounds paused. She shook herself free from her tormentors, and springing back, rose for one moment to her full height, naked, 
snow white against the dusky mass around shame and indignation in those wide clear eyes but not a stain of fear with one hand she clasped her golden locks around her the other long white arm was stretched upward toward the still great weeping christ appealing and who dare say in vain from man to God. Uh, that was from a fictional piece of work about Hypatia's death as she was um, perhaps taken to a Christian um, location and murdered, perhaps not. But um, I guess if I want any uh, vision of Hypatia, um, I guess it's that one. Uh, as she basically stared back defiance and, um, you know, in her own way, in her own uh, non-pagan way, appealed to the, the betterment of the Christian mob um, that had unceremoniously killed her. But the, the actual death of Hypatia has been recorded by a few different historians, um, they all kind of have a different view of it. They all have different versions, and I'm going to lay them out for you. The historian uh, Deacon writes, The most detailed accounts we have of Hypatia's life are the records of her death. We learn more about her death from the primary sources than we do about any other aspects of her life. She was murdered in 415 CE by a Christian mob who had attacked her on the streets of Alexandria. Maybe. The primary sources, even those Christian writers who were hostile to her and claimed she was a witch, portray her as a woman who is widely known for her generosity, love of learning, and expertise in teaching, and the subject of Neoplatonism, mathematics, science, and philosophy just in general. And that just kind of gives you a step to the very first person we're going to talk about. We already talked to him. Talked. Let's say we talked to him in in my heart, I talk to him. Socrates Scholasticus, or Socrates of Byzantium. Same dude. That bloke right there, he had the very, he had the most recent and con contextual versions of events surrounding the death. His sources were some of the people who lived in Alexandria at the time of her death. Um, so if I'm going to take stock in any of these sources, it's probably going to be this one. And I'm going to pick up right where I left off from him the last time. Yet even she fell victim to the political jealousy which at that time prevailed. For she had frequent interviews with Orestes. Orestes was the um, governor, the prefect, the person put in charge from Rome. It was calamitously reported among the Christian populace that it was she who prevented Orestes from being reconciled to the bishop. Cyril. Some of them therefore hurried away by a fierce and bigoted zeal, whose ringleader was named Peter, waylaid her, returning home, dragging her from her carriage. They took her to the church called Caesarium, where they completely stripped her and then murdered her with tiles. After tearing her body in pieces, they took her mangled limbs to a place called Cinaron, 
where they burnt them. This affair brought not the least opprobrium, not only upon Cyril, but also upon the whole Alexandrian church. And surely nothing can be farther from the spirit of Christianity than the allowance of massacres, fights, and transactions of said sort. This happened in the month of March during Lent, in the fourth year of Cyril's Episcopate, under the tenth consulate of Honorius, and the sixth of Theodosius. A um, couple of notes on this account. Uh, tiles can sometimes be translated as oyster shells. They can also be translated as broken pottery. Nonetheless, uh, tile, the, the word tiles, I think, does a decent enough job at describing the horror of her death, basically dismembered um, either through tiles, broken pottery, or oyster shells. Yikes. Um, as a further note, she she was killed and by a Christian mob. We're, we're pretty darn certain about it. And the point I want to make about that is it could have just as easily been a pagan mob that killed her. Or a mob of monks from Alexandria. Some of them weren't any better than brigands. Um, and so much of history likes to lay the conflagration of Alexandria's culture at the feet of Christians is just not entirely true. I really like to try and stand both sides, you know, as much as possible. And kind of as I mentioned earlier, Alexandria was this tinderbox waiting to be waiting to explode. And the death of Hypatia was probably the the penultimate point, the climax. There was an ongoing feud between the Bishop Cyril and the the governor Oristus. It kind of started interestingly. Uh uh, a Christian member of Cyril's like party posse took a rock and threw it at, threw it at Orsus' head as he was uh, like being carried through the city. Um, it made him bleed, and Orsus was like, "What the fuck? Arrest that guy!" They arrested him. A couple of other people. They took him back to. Uh, they, they took him back to like a, a temple um, and then they executed him and Cyril was pretty pissed about it uh, and he, that's part of where this feud started but I just thought that was an interesting note um, another note on her death another uh, historian writes this was written by Damascus, uh, two, said, two generations after her death. Thus it happened one day that Cyril, bishop of the other party, was passing by Hypatia's house, and he saw a great crowd of people and horses in front of her door. Some were arriving, some departing, and others standing around. When he asked why there was a crowd there, and what all the fuss was about, he was told by her followers that it was the house of Hypatia, the philosopher, and she was about to greet them. When Cyril learned this, he was so struck with envy that he immediately began plotting her murder, and the most heinous form of murder at that. Later, he writes kind of how the murder occurred. For when Hypatia emerged from her house, 
in her accustomed manner, a throng of merciless and ferocious men who feared neither divine punishment nor human revenge attacked and cut her down, thus committing an outrageous and disgraceful deed against their fatherland. Again, this is kind of written, you know, kind of well after it happened. I'm skeptical, skeptical of it. Um, there's one thing I do want to talk about it that he mentioned, and that's kind of Cyril looking at this great group um, surrounding Hypatia as the civil leader. And that was probably true. Uh, she was, as I said several times, very well respected, and she had a great following to her name. So it's not unlikely that that, that would have happened, and uh, perhaps he saw this maybe not quite uh, pagan, but this not Christian person gaining such a following in Alexandria. Uh, perhaps he was part of it. There's no proof that he was indeed the one that incensed the mob to murder her. Could have been Hypatia herself saying something in public that she shouldn't have. Who knows? Uh, but I, I did kind of want to point that out that he probably feared that her contingent would side with Governor Oristus as she was seen as closer to him than to Cyril in this kind of ongoing feud. And the final account. And thereafter, a multitude of believers in God arose under the guidance of Peter the Magistrate. Now this Peter was a perfect believer in all respects in Jesus Christ. And they proceeded to seek for the pagan woman who had beguiled the people of the city and the prefect through her enchantments. And when they learned that the place where she was, they proceeded to her and found her seated on a lofty chair. And having made her descend, they dragged her along till they brought her to the great church named Caesarion. Now this was in the days of the fast, and they tore off her clothing and dragged her till they brought her through the streets of the city till she died. And they carried her to a place named Cineron, and they burned her body with fire. And all the people surrounded the patriarch Cyril and named him the new Theophilus. For he had destroyed the last remains of idolatry in the city. And that's John of Niku. Uh, it was written two centuries after <laughs> it happened. Um, much of the city had changed. Uh, the, the rulers had changed. You know, Rome was no longer in power. Uh, so a lot happened between then. Kind of seems like a conglomeration of, of both stories um, that were passed out and perhaps even from Scholasticus put in more of a uh, positive uh, Christian light. Uh, and something that is interesting is uh, he later made a saint. Cyril is later made a, a saint for uh, perhaps in part of um, destroying, uh, the, as John of Niku puts it, the last remnants of idolatry in the city. So there. Holy cow, that was quite the episode. It lasted a lot longer than I thought it would. Uh, part of that's just me talking a lot. Um, but uh, something we can all agree on is the death of Patia was very sad. Um, she might have been old. She might have been kind of young, depending on when you have her being born. Uh, but regardless, it's always sad to see a woman of that stature and 
you know, it, that held as highly in the public view as Hypatia taken early and in such a gruesome way. Um, so therein lies, <coughs> well, therein lies the story of Hypatia, uh, the Roman Empire that surrounded her. And if you'd like to learn more, uh, let me know and look for future installments on the history of women. I think the next time we're going to hit up China um, for the, the next installment here, and that'll happen probably a couple of episodes after the um, history of slavery as it continues here. So for now, follow me uh, on Twitter at, at Seth4Nerds, Seth the number four nerds. Uh, email me uh, with opinions, suggestions, you know, I'd take anything. And that's Seth Michaels, S-E-T-H-M-I-C-H-E-L-S, at HistoryUncensoredPod.com. Subscribe to the podcast wherever podcasts are available. Leave me lots of five-star reviews. Uh, it helps me out tremendously. I, I'm very new. I've just started. This is my second podcast. Um, I will continue, as I said, with the history of slavery uh, on the next one. But as always, guys, history remembers. Have a great day.